Welcome to uh, Choice Does Not Siphon Public School Money, a primer. My name is Neil McCluskey. I'm the director of the Center for Educational Freedom here at the Cato Institute. Uh, perhaps due to frustration with closed schools under COVID-19 or just uh, an awakening that the default in education for a free country should be the freedom to choose, school choice bills seem to be popping up all over the country. Uh, the latest count from the Education Freedom Institute legislation tracker shows 29 states with private school choice legislation this year. Uh, the objection that we see most often to this sort of legislation is that school choice would hurt public schools by siphoning money from those public schools. Now, I think this is a, a very big myth, uh, which our panelists today tackle actually in their chapter in our new book, School Choice Myths. There's School Choice Myths. Get yours today. It came out in October. So they've written a lot about this in this book and elsewhere, as we'll talk about. Uh, but unfortunately, we're seeing this myth uh, so much right now that we couldn't really wait for everybody to read the book. I know everybody out there has the book. You're, you're getting ready to read it. You may be partially through. But we decided we really have to take care of this right now. Uh, and so we decided to put together this event, which was, is a primer. Uh, the goal is to inform you uh, how school choice works and to enable you to analyze for yourselves whether a program may be in your state, maybe just one that you're interested in, how you can analyze whether it will actually siphon funds from public schools. So who are our panelists today? Well, the first is Ben Scafferty. He's the professor of economics and director of the Education Economics Center at Kennesaw State University. He's also a senior fellow at EdChoice. And Marty Lucan who's the director of EdChoice's Fiscal Research and Education Center. Now, today's event will be a bit more talky than usual, as Ben and Marty are basically going to run something of a class for you to give you those tools that you need to address the siphoning myth. Uh, first, they're going to discuss uh, the general approach to how you look at the effect of a school choice program on education funding. Uh, and then they're going to illustrate more concretely how this works by analyzing two specific proposals, one in New Hampshire and one in West Virginia. Now, you can download uh, two new papers that they've published on this. If you go to the events page, the page for this event on Cato's website, you'll see uh, um, down at the bottom, it says additional resources. And there are links underneath that heading, both to buy school choice myths and to download their two new reports. So if you really want to get in the weeds in New Hampshire, or if you want to look at lots of different states, which is what Marty does, uh, you can get into that really deep analysis downloading those papers. Now, like I said, we're going to be a bit more chatty than usual, but just because we're doing that doesn't mean we won't be responding to questions and comments. We absolutely will. So send on Twitter and Facebook what questions and comments you may have using hashtag CatoCEF. That's hashtag C-A-T-O-C-E-F. Or on other means, depending on what platform you're watching us on, you might have a, uh, a form that you can fill to send questions. Take a look. If you're not on Twitter and Facebook, there's a way to send us questions and comments. And we will certainly have, I think, a, a half an hour or so to answer those. Um, and then with that, uh, we're going to start off with Ben. Thank you for having me, Neil. Uh, this is screen sharing. Not yet. All right. 
soon. There are always technical problems when we're on Zoom. I, I think I see things happening. I think I see a screen being shared. We just got to get the PowerPoint up there. Um, now's a good time, though, if you're thinking of a question or comment, and that PowerPoint's going to be up very soon. But if you have a question or comment, remember, send it hashtag Cato CEF, that's C A T O C E F. Um, and then, uh, Ben, if you continue uh, to have uh, some problems, um, I don't know whether Marty might want to do his piece first. Uh, I think we'll probably get this up very soon. Um, but if not, uh, then maybe Marty, you can talk about yours. I think somebody just said something. It, it says I'm sharing. Huh? Well, I'm not seeing that yet. Um, and is it possible to do without the screen sharing? Sure. Yeah. While you work on that though, I want to show one thing that is in if you can keep working on that just for a second, I want to show something that, that I always think, oh, there it is. I'm just going to share one thing then when we get that up. In uh, Ben and Marty's chapter, uh, I'm going to hold this up. It's not very professional probably to hold up a book, but this is like the key, the keystone. Uh, I'm going to try and, there we go. That's sort of level. No, not anymore. Anyway, this is sort of the keystone equation for understanding whether or not a school is going to, I mean, a program is going to siphon money from public schools. So that's page 82 of School Choice Myths. Uh, it's, it's like uh, the, the whole argument in a nutshell. Um, and then I think now we're ready, Ben. Is that right? Yes. So th thanks for having us, Neil. And to talk about the fiscal effects of school choice, we first have to explain how public school funding works. And as most of you know, public school funding is very, very complex. So funding flows to public school districts and public school districts in general get funding from local taxpayers, state taxpayers and federal taxpayers. And so for the 2017-2018 school year, um, US public school revenues, as you see on the screen, were about $14,840 per student. And th these are national averages. And so state funding was just shy of 7,000 per student. Local funding on average was just shy of 6,800 per student. And federal funding was about $1,100 per student. That varies fairly widely across states. Um, some states rely more on local funding. Some states rely more on uh, state funding and federal funding uh, changes a bit with student need. So public schools get, in general, funding from these three sources and it flows to school districts. Right? Not all of this funding is enrollment driven. Right? Most local funding, and in most states, pretty much all of it, it's just locals, uh, they levy, say, a property tax, and that goes to the district, and that amount does not depend on how many students that public school district has. Um, uh, state funding tends to be more enrollment driven, that if you have more students, you get more state funding. If you have fewer students, you get less state funding. But as we'll see later on in this talk, some of that state funding is not enrollment driven. It's, it's you just get it. And federal funding, some of it's enrollment driven, some of it's not. Some of it you just get as a district. It just sort of depends on the characteristics of your community. Um, 
So public schools get funding from these sources. And just like any other enterprise in, in, in the world, um, in the short run, public school districts have fixed costs and variable costs. So when they lose students for any reason, say they move out of state or they move to another school district, public schools do also lose variable costs. So they don't have to incur those costs for those students who have left. But they also have fixed costs in the short run, things like capital administration. And I wrote a report on this uh, several years ago for EdChoice. Marty's written on this, and then some guys put one in an academic journal. And we all have similar estimates of fixed and variable costs for public schools. And what's important to note, last thing I'm gonna say here, is that when states have school choice programs, it usually only involves state funds. So usually the school choice program only redirects some of that 6937, the state funds, into say a scholarship or an education savings account or, or some, you know, what have you. And so I'm gonna turn it over to Marty now because he has done a ton of work on analyzing the fiscal effects of school choice programs all over the country. Thanks for having me, Neil. Um, so the burning question is, do choice programs siphon or drain public schools of students and their associated funding, right? So I wanna give uh, everyone the three basic facts for your consideration to, um, to, to evaluate this question. First, we often hear, hear that uh, choice programs were, are, is gonna lead to an exodus of students from public schools and therefore reduce funding by a lot. And the fact is that when, when you compare the number of students uh, participating in education choice programs across the nation and the number of students enrolled in public school systems uh, where those programs operate, the public school system is still by far by far the dominant uh, educational provider. Um, students and choice programs comprise just 2% of publicly funded um, K-12 students na nationally. And the amount of money to increase educational opportunities, it, it's tiny compared to what taxpayers spend on public school systems. It, it represents, ju it's just 1% of total public schools, of to total public spending on K-12 systems. So what you have is you have choice programs that enroll 2% of publicly funded K-12 students, and they receive 1% of public funding. And the, the third fact is that these programs receive, on, on a per student basis, they receive, again, way less than what public schools receive. Um, the cost of these of choice programs is just over a little bit more than one third of what it costs to educate those students in public school systems. So choice programs are receiving 64, about 64% less than uh, per, per student than what public school systems receive. So clearly savings are occurring to someone when students leave public schools via these choice programs. So the question is then what, what's happening to the savings? Well, governments could do things like reduce taxes, um, but usually they do not. And if you don't believe that, um, look at your last tax bill. 
usually they're not doing any, they're not taking action. So the money is just staying in the system. And when they do nothing with the savings, uh, public schools, turns out, they will end up with more resources for fewer students that they have to that they have to serve. Now, we really want to know the net fiscal impact on taxpayers. And to know this, we need to compare the cost of a program with savings from students who are participating in these programs who would um, otherwise enroll in in, the, in a public school system. And so uh, we recently posted a fiscal study uh, where we analyzed 40 education choice programs in the US. And we estimated the net fiscal impact on state and local taxpayers combined through from each program's inception uh, through fiscal year 2018. And the estimated cumulative net fiscal savings uh, for state and local taxpayers were 12 point, between $12.1 billion and uh, $27.8 billion. That's up to $7,400 per student um, for each student participating in that program. And put another way, for each dollar spent on choice programs, um, taxpayers experienced um, between $1.80 and $2.80 in, in savings. Um, now, I'm not, I won't, if, if you're anyone who's interested in the methods, how we um, did the analysis, all that's uh, in the paper. And, and the, um, we also uh, explain a lot of that too um, in, the, in the School Choice Myths book too in our chapter. Now, it's also important um, for us to understand if these programs have harmful effects on public school students. Um, you know, we want to know if we should be concerned if they're somehow harmed or left behind. Uh, and fortunately, there have been 27 stu uh, rigorous studies that have examined this question of whether students who leave public schools via these choice programs have some kind of effect on uh, the on learning by students who remain in public schools. And of these studies, you have 25 that have found students experience uh, modest test score gains, not, not test score reductions, not learning loss, but they're actually benefiting. One study wasn't, wasn't able to, de uh, to detect uh, any effect. And then one study found a reduction in uh, test scores. And there's also been, um, a meta analysis uh, that was published a couple years ago. Um, for those who might not be familiar with what a meta analysis is, it's basically a sophisticated um, statistical analysis for a study of studies. And they concluded uh, this the same, basically that competition from uh, choice policies has a positive, ha has a benefit for students uh, um, on student achievement for students who remain in public schools. And so they quote, and quote the, the, the lack of an overall negative impact on student outcomes might ease critics' concerns that you know, competition will hurt those students left behind due to these policies. Um, so if choice programs are a drain on resources and if they harm public school students, um, we certainly, we don't see this in, in the academic um, you know, evidentiary record. Uh, nor do we see it in the fiscal data um, and nearly every fiscal analysis that has been conducted on these programs. Um, so I'll uh, go ahead and um, switch it back over to Ben. 
Thank you, Marty. You've done so much work, and I, I encourage everyone to go look at Marty's work at edchoice.org. Uh, I, I want to underscore something Neil said at the start. When you're debating school choice legislation in state capitals, the focus is on the money. And I'll tell you a quick story. 18 years ago, I was a new assistant professor. I had spent two years working for the Democratic governor of Georgia on the side, uh, helping him with education reform. And then a, a Republican governor got elected here in Georgia, and he asked me to be his education advisor. Well, I was just this young professor. I didn't know what to do. So I went to go see a guy who had worked you know, pretty high up with the Democratic governor. And I said, you know, what do I do? You know, and I asked him a bunch of questions. And he was bitter because his guy had lost. And he said, Ben, you're going to go in there and committee hearings with all your charts and your facts and your figures and your studies and your evidence and your logic. And he goes, it doesn't matter because all they care about and he meant they was the public school lobbies. He said, all they care about is the money, right? And if you think about it, it well, Wani turned out to be a prophet. The money is the biggest argument when we debate school choice legislation or any kind of K through 12 education policy. But when you think about it, public schools have the best fiscal deal on the planet earth, right? Public school districts, they get to keep a huge fraction of funds, as Marty just said, when students leave. No one else has that deal. Think about grocery stores. If you shop at Kroger every week for your groceries, and then next week you decide, you know what, I'm gonna switch to Walmart. I think that's a better value for my money. In the future, Kroger doesn't get to keep 60% of your grocery bill, right? When you switch from Kroger to Walmart, Kroger loses all your future funding. Okay, think about universities. When a student leaves my university, Kennesaw State, and transfers to Georgia Tech, which happens from time to time, we lose all funding for that student. We lose state formula funding. We lose tuition and fees. We lose Pell Grants. Here in Georgia, we have Hope Scholarships. All that funding follows the students. But public schools get to keep a huge fraction of funding for students they no longer serve but yet they scream the loudest about, oh, school choice has taken our money. It's really silly when you think about it. Um, and, and Marty's gonna give a, a good example now of some research he's done on West Virginia. Yeah, well, thanks, Ben. Um, so, in case anyone's not familiar, um, an exciting story is uh, developing in West Virginia. Last week, uh, the West Virginia Senate <clears throat> passed the the most expensive ESA, the most I'm sorry, expansive uh, ESA bill in the nation um, by vote of 2013. Uh, to, to in one of stating, so. The governor is will now have uh, five days when he receives the bill to take action, and if the governor doesn't sign uh, or veto, you know, within this window of receiving the bill, um, that it's going to become law um, w without any action. So, let me share with you uh, some of the details um, about the key details about this bill. 
This bill would create the largest education savings account program for K-12 students uh, in West Virginia. Um, it's called the Hope Scholarship Program. And this would be the first school choice program uh, in, in the state, which is great. Parents of eligible students, uh, so they'll be able to use public funds uh, that would be deposited into a HOPE scholarship account. Um, they can use these funds to access uh, educational services, um, a variety of educational services, and, um, and use them for, uh, for qualified expenses. Um, and these things include uh, accessing, uh, being able to per, um, access certain services provided by a public school district, um, like extracurricular activities um, and programs or individual classes. They could use it for tuition and fees uh, um, for, for uh, participating schools like uh, private schools. They can use it um, to pay for non-public online learning programs, alternative education programs, tutoring services, uh, nationally standardized tests. Uh, they can use it for transportation, curricula, um, therapies, and, and, so, and so on. And the, the real neat thing about this is that every the, the eligibility is, is broad. Every kindergartner in the state would be eligible, plus all students in grades K in grades uh, one through twelve who were enrolled in a public school for at least forty five days um, prior to, to joining the program. There is no income limit on this program, and there is no cap on how many students would be able to participate. Now, now, here's one interesting feature um, of, of this program. If, if less than 5% of the net public school enrollment adjusted for state aid purposes, if less than 5% of that uh, particular enrollment count um, for the previous year is enrolled in the ESA uh, program on July 1st, 2024, then effective July 1st, 2026, Every student in the state of West Virginia would be eligible for the for for this program. So this would include um, all stu you know students who are already enrolled in private school and homeschool settings um, as well. They would be enrolled if uh, if that mark is um, is not met. So the the now a bit about the funding. Um, the value of the ESA the CSA program is 100% of the year's average state aid per pupil. So as Ben mentioned, the, the ESA amount is tied to the state's portion of the funding, or, or so it's actually a, a portion, it's less than um, the, all of uh, state funding. So for this amount, for this year, that amount would be $4,600. Now the average amount, um, the average total funding for uh, per student for West Virginia public schools um, in, fis in fiscal year, uh, this past year is almost $13,000. So that means that on average, the ESA uh, cost is about 35% of the cost to educate a student in the state's public school system. And so what that means is that when, again, when a student leaves a public school, um, it's going to reduce costs. And, and, and and more than $8,000, um, which represents the size of that gap between the ESA cost and the cost to educate that kid in the public school system, that $8,000 is going to remain in the system. Uh, even though 
uh, public schools no longer need uh, have to educate that student. So that's just a little bit about this uh, th this bill. And again, it's really exciting for West Virginia. Um, you know, a lot of folks have done great work um, over many years to uh, to get to this point. And who knows? Hopefully, soon we will be seeing uh, West Virginia become a national leader um, when it comes to educational choice. So I'll turn it over to you, Neil, or, or to Ben. So I'm talking about New Hampshire. Okay. I'm talking about New Hampshire. Um, they've passed a, a, a bill through just the state Senate. Um, late last week, it passed 14 to 11. And their plan is called Education Freedom Accounts. And Education Freedom Accounts in New Hampshire would give just uh, 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 some of the state funds to all families in New Hampshire that earn less than 300% of the federal poverty line. So for a household of three people, 300% of the poverty line is about uh, $66,000 a year. For a family of four, it's around $80,000 a year. And families that get these education freedom accounts can use these funds to pay for tuition in private schools, for tutoring, for um, a, a variety of, of special needs services, for fees, for tests and things. Um, like Marty talked about that, just like in West Virginia, the average EFA grant is less than state funding per student in New Hampshire. So the average EFA grant uh, if, if this program had existed in 2020, would have been about $4,600 per student. Where state funds, you can see, are $5,900 per student. And the total average spending per student in New Hampshire public schools back then was closer to $20,000 back in 2020. So it's, it's as Marty suggested, it's kind of hard to argue that there's no savings to taxpayers when we're taking kids out of public schools that, and we're giving them $4,600 when public schools cost $20,000 per student. However, there's a wrinkle in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, existing private school students are eligible. So I projected in my report that in the first year of the program, 536 students in private schools would take ESAs because they wanted one and because their family income was below 300% of the poverty line, so they're eligible. And so in 2022, that fiscal year, the average EFA is projected to be 4,600 per student. So that would cost the state about two and a half million dollars. But the state would save a little bit of money for students who switched from a public school to a private school. And so on net, I project that it's going to cost state taxpayers $2.4 million to provide EFAs to these students. But local taxpayers save money on this deal. Local taxpayers, I project that there'll be 430 public school students who use an EFA in the first year of the program. The numbers of users is projected to be low. I base that on studies from many other states when they have new school choice programs. And think about it, if this bill becomes a law, 
it'll be signed into law in May, and then the school year is just a few months around the corner. So not many students are going to use this at first. And I did a projection for year two as well. Um, so I project that local taxpayers will save $4.2 million on this deal because they will save $14,649 per student in variable costs when students leave. And that's based on estimates that I've done in the past, Marty, and then this other academic study also found. Um, and so they'll save 6.3 million in variable cost districts, and they'll lose 2.1 million in state funding for enrollment growth. So on net, it'll be $4.2 million in savings. So overall, they'll be saving almost $2 million in taxpayers from this deal. Right. Okay, some suggest that public schools don't have any variable costs. Well, if that were really true, if that were really true, then we wouldn't give public schools funding for enrollment growth, right? But of course, they, they want funding for enrollment growth. They claim when, when enrollment's growing, public schools claim correctly, in my view, that they have more costs. They need more teachers, they need more bus drivers, what have you. But they can't have it both ways. They can't say when enrollment's going up, we have variable costs, but oh, when enrollment's going down, all our costs are fixed. They can't have it both ways logically. The other point I wanna make is that New Hampshire, like pretty much every other state in the United States, has had this decades-long staffing surge. So for example, New Hampshire, from 1995 to 2019, their student counts in their public schools fell by 9%. So public schools in New Hampshire have a lot of experience with losing a few students here and there. But they don't seem to be too harmed too much fiscally, right? Their number of teachers has gone up 23%. So that's a tremendous decrease in average class sizes. But look at their all other staff. So I divided public school employees into two groups, teachers and everybody else. So all other staff includes bus drivers, assistant principals, deputy superintendents, counselors, social workers, parapros, whatever, throw it all in. And that's increased 80% while they've been losing students. So public schools, they have variable costs. All right, and Neil, I'm happy to take questions now, as is Marty. Thank you. Great. Uh, well, I appreciate the enthusiasm that uh, the panelists have brought today. Uh, in fact, we were supposed to take a little break between our sections uh, so that I could uh, you know, give a little plug for people to send their questions and comments. Plus, I had something I want you guys to react to, but I'm gonna get to that right now. So I understand you want to get your material and that's great. And we have had questions and comments come flowing in as a result. Um, but something, Ben, you said before you uh, you and Marty went to your state analysis, uh, when you were talking about kind of what a great deal it is for public schools to essentially always have money, even when they don't have the students, uh, it was really connected to something that one of the people who sent a comment said, uh, it comes from someone who's going by Economic Man. Again, I assume that's not what's on his birth certificate. Uh, but Economic Man via Twitter uh, says, isn't one response to the siphoning argument simply to say that the same argument could be made in defense of any monopoly? Uh, and I'm just sort of curious what you all think about that, about this idea that if you have a monopoly, any money that loses it, you could say is siphoning. Yes. I mean, it, it's ridiculous, right? It, it's you should get taxpayer money as a public school to educate students. 
and if you have fewer students, why do you get to keep the same amount of money? I mean, that would be silly, right? And, and like, like Economic Man says, why should any monopoly get to keep funding for customers that have left and think they found a better situation for themselves or a better good or service? Um, if you think the best education for your child is in a private school, right? And, and, and you, the child moves from a public school to a private school, funding should flow that way as well. So I, I agree with economic man. Great. Marty, do you have thoughts on economic man's comments? No, I, I agree. And I take it further. Um, why should any organization or entity service provider um, get to keep a portion of the funding? Um, if you look at uh, education broadly, um, you know, pre-K and higher ed uh, has been mentioned. You know, all the dollars follow the, you know, the, the, the customer, the student, client, um, what have you. Um, so, so yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that all, all the dollars should follow the kids. And, um, and it also, that with that system, I think that could uh, realign the incentives and put pressure on the monopoly to um, better serve uh, the, you know, the students, in this case, the public school system. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Patrick writes, um, siphon might be a bit strong, but isn't it literally true that the exercise of school choice reduces the amount of money that goes to government-run public schools? If 100 students leave a school district via school choice, that district will receive less revenue as a result. I want to get your reactions to that, but the first thing I'd I want to say just myself quickly is there's also sort of a philosophical dimension to this, which you guys have certainly touched on. But one of the questions as well is the money there to go to a particular system. Do we spend money specifically because we want a public school system or is the purpose of the funding to educate students? And so some of where you fall on the siphoning myth is whether you think, well, of course it all is supposed to go to public schools, to that monopoly. And so if you let it follow a student, that is by definition siphoning because it is supposed to be in the system. Or is it for those students? And if you think it, the funding is for students to get an education, we might call that public education versus public schooling, uh, then it's not siphoning, it is just enabling the person and the family that's supposed to be getting the benefit of these dollars, although society does too, but uh, Ben actually talks a little bit about this in New Hampshire. Uh, if we get better education or better outcomes from private schooling, society and the individuals benefit. And so if we think that money is supposed to go to educate students, not just to a particular system, then it's not siphoning as a philosophical uh, um, approach. Uh, I don't know where, what you guys think about the philosophical part. Maybe Marty, if you want to go first, uh, and then after that, uh, Ben, or if Marty, if you don't have anything you want to say on that, we'll go right to Ben. And if he has anything to say, we'll go to the next question or comment. No, uh, look, I, I, I think that, um, you know, we should be thinking broadly and, you know, thinking about funding a public education, uh, you know, funding edu public education in instead of uh, funding um, students. Look, every child is has their own uh, unique needs, you know, even within families with a lot of, with a lot of, that might have uh, multiple kids, 
uh, each kid is going to be different and each kid is going to need a different learning environment, right? And the system that we're funding may not adequately be able to serve uh, all, all of the kids. And so I, I think moving to you know, funding uh, students and students' needs, um, you know, and getting away, moving away from this idea of funding the system itself um, would you know, advance education um, further. I don't know if Ben, if you have anything you want to add. Yeah, I'll just add, P Patrick has a point, right? When, when a student leaves a public school, in most states, they lose the majority of state funding. And that's true if the student switches from a public school in one district to a public school in another district or moves out of state or goes to homeschooling or private schooling, what have you. But, but they get to keep all their local money and a significant portion of federal money. So, so I agree with Neil and Marty that philosophically, taxpayers give money to educate students. They don't give it to some entity. They, it's on behalf of students. But I think practically, the money that they get to keep is, is, is crazy compared to what every other entity on earth has. Universities, again, we don't have that deal. A student leaves, all the money follows. A public school, a student leaves for any reason, they get to keep 60 some percent of the money. That's a great deal for them fiscally, and yet they complain, It's which mystifies me. Great, well, so our next question um, is uh, more specifically about uh, kids with disabilities. So Sarah from New York, um, I don't know what platform she's on, but she says, how does school choice work for students eligible for individuals with disabilities uh, education act money when the most appropriate choice school costs $60,000? I don't know whether you guys want to talk a little bit about existing uh, school choice programs for folks with, or for kids with disabilities or, or IDEA. Um, I don't know. I, I think I called Marty first on the last one. Ben, do you want to start on this one? And if not, you sure. can pass and we can send it to Marty. Sure. I'll just say one thing is that federal money is not allowed to be in these state program scholarships for special needs students. So like what states like uh, Florida and Georgia and others that have a special needs scholarship do is they just put in state funds for special needs students, which is much larger than these averages Marty and I showed you because state funding formulas tend to give significantly more funding for students with special needs. But as, as the questioner suggests, it is a lot less than the full cost of educating special needs students. I would argue that's an argument for putting more money into scholarships, right? If we're gonna spend a, a large dollar amount on a special needs student in this setting, we should let the family choose to take those dollars and spend it in that setting if they think that's what's best for their child. Marty. Yeah, and we do have um, over a dozen uh, educational choice programs that are tailored to students with special needs, and how those um, those programs are funded uh, varies greatly. Um, so some you have some programs like Ohio, for example, or uh, in, in Florida that they 
tie the 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 cost of uh, the voucher and as these programs are um, those vouch the cost of the voucher or the funding for the voucher um, sorry uh, is based on the funding that that's that those students would generate for their uh, individual uh, school districts um, but then there are other programs that might have a flat uh, a voucher ESA amount or, or whatnot um, that uh, is much, much lower than what those students uh, would receive. So, I mean, I, I think overall, uh, you still have uh, you know, a lot of uh, funding gaps. And so, you know, take up for these programs are gonna be lower. Um, but if you truly want to make sure that these students have access to uh, the services um, that they need, um, then, you know, as Ben mentioned, you know, I, I think we need to be putting uh, more money uh, into those programs, um, at least to get to, to parity and make sure that they um, can adequately access, um, you know, the resources that they need. Great. Uh, I would just throw in there that um, there's often assertion made that, well, public schools have to educate all students, but it's a case that if you have kids with uh, greater disabilities, often uh, a public school have to pay for a private placement in a place that can specialize in the need of that student. We don't think of it this way, but that's essentially a, a voucher for someone with a disability. And so it's a knock against private schools to say that they don't take every child with every disability, but it's important to understand neither do public schools. Uh, and what they do is they pay for that student to go to a school that can provide them what they need. And that's essentially what we're looking for in a school choice program is for everyone to be able to find the school that best fits their needs. Now, um, we we've been talking about private schools, but we've gotten a lot of questions uh, about charter schools. I'm trying to find one in particular that asked about it. Uh, well, so Jonathan asked, you focus in today's presentation on private school choice programs. Does your research examine the effect of charter schools on district budgets? Thanks. I don't know whether either one of you guys have looked specifically at charter schools. I think it works on generally the same principles, but do either of you want to talk about charter schools? Because we've had a lot of people ask questions about them. Uh, I'll just I add real, I've not published anything but I have played around with it and all the same principles do apply. But in practice, a lot of charter school funding is, uh, sorry, uh, districts, depending on the state, sometimes they just lose the state funding when districts go to a charter school. Um, but in some states, there is some kind of proportional match or some local funding that goes in there as well. So sometimes school districts lose more funding per student when a student leaves to a charter school, but it's still the case that public schools get to retain significant funds. And it is the case that charter schools spend a lot less per student than the districts where they're located. Um, Corey DeAngelis at Reason, Patrick Wolf at um, uh, University of Arkansas have written on this if you want to see their work, Corey DeAngelis and Patrick Wolf. Marty, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, yeah. So I 
I don't work on um, do any work uh, on charter schools specifically, um, but I was going to mention, um, as Ben did, that uh, Patrick Wolf and you know the University of Arkansas and his team uh, of researchers um, and, and Corey they that they have a series of reports looking at funding disparities um, between uh, public charter schools and district schools. And they also have uh, conducted some uh, ROI analyses um, as well, in case anyone's interested in that. All right, thank you. Yeah, uh, maybe we'll do an event on charter schools in the future. Right now, our focus is on private schools. Uh, but Michael asks uh, an interesting question. Uh, he says, have there been any school choice programs that focus on allowing parents access to local tax dollars or state laws that would merely establish or clarify that local taxing districts have the option to create school choice programs on the local level. Um, I only am aware of the one uh, that was struck down in Colorado. I think it was Douglas County, but I don't know. Uh, Marty, uh, we'll go with you first. Do you know of any others? Do you have anything you want to say about Colorado or the idea in general? Yeah, so I'm not aware of any programs that are currently in operation um, that do that. Um, it, 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 the programs, uh, you know, in uh, existence today, if they uh, tie funding um, into the funding formulas, it's usually tied to the state dollars. Um, and I'm not a lawyer, so, but I believe um, there may, depending on the state, there are probably going to be some legal obstacles uh, to that. But um, unfortunately, I wouldn't be able to speak to that. Um, but again, in uh, in principle, though, um, I I think that uh, if you know if a state is able to pass a program that would allow parents access to the local dollars, which they you know uh, are paying, um, that I think that would be a great way um, to improve uh, K twelve education um, for for that state. Ben? Yeah, I give the same answer as Marty. Um, and then just one thing on the charter schools, the Thomas B. Fordham Institute has a new report on that issue as well. You should check out. But I, I have the same answer as Marty on that question. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say if you're interested in a local district that tried to do it, I'm pretty sure it was Douglas County, unless it was Jefferson County. They're both doing school choice kind of things, I think, around the same time. But in Colorado, uh, and if I recall correctly, uh, the effort was struck down in the state Supreme Court. But, well, no, it was in the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, but this the school board changed and they eliminated the program. So there was an effort, and I'm pretty sure it was Douglas County, Colorado to do that. It's the only local one that I know about, but uh, I don't see any uh, inherent reason that you couldn't uh, voucherize or somehow deliver school choice with local money, but it's just not something we've seen. Um, the next question uh, is, let me make sure it's from Supernova on Facebook. Uh, and they say, how about funding homeschooling? And I guess the way to operationalize that is you have education savings account proposals that would sometimes let people use money for homeschooling uh, and not just private school tuition. Do, do either one of you, maybe we'll start with Ben, because I know you talk about this in regards to the New Hampshire legislation. Does homeschooling or an education savings account create any extra wrinkles to what you've already talked about? 
right, so the New Hampshire proposal, as you suggest, does allow you to take that, say, $4,600 per student and use it for homeschooling, but you have to put it to certain costs that the family's incurring. They can't just keep the money. Um, but it does present a fiscal issue because if you have a student that wasn't costing the state taxpayers of New Hampshire anything, and now they cost up to $4,600 per student, that is a new fiscal cost. So that would increase costs to the state and offset savings that the state and local taxpayers get when students leave public schools. So there is a fiscal wrinkle there, yes. Mm -hmm. Marty, anything you wanna throw in for that? Yeah, so um, going back to West Virginia, if, uh, if by 2024, um, less than 5% of uh, students uh, in the public school system in that state is enrolled in the ESA program, then that state, uh, then the program uh, will open up to uh, students already enrolled in private school as well as homeschoolers. And again, as Ben said, um, there there is there would be a fiscal cost uh, to that um, with uh, West Virginia's bill is the way that it's funded right now. As long as uh, sixty, as long as more than sixty-five percent of students um, in the that would uh, take up the program are switchers. Um, that is, as long as sixty-five uh, percent of those students um, are those who would enroll in a in a public school without the program in place, then that program would uh, save money. Um, for 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 the state and, and uh, taxpayers overall. All right, terrific. Um, we got uh, we received a comment from anonymous, so no name, but uh, they say Pennsylvania has a law allowing districts to provide tuition grants to students using state funds. So districts provide grants to students using state funds. Not surprisingly, they say no districts have taken advantage of it. So uh, I'll just throw that out there. That could be sort of a wrinkle of the district can decide to let the state funds go somewhere, which is uh, sort of like local, but still with state funds. Um, I'll have to look into that. Um, then the uh, Joe says, the discussion has focused on cost and budget. Any comments concerning the quality of the education, meaning is the budget transferred to private schools achieving good results? And that's, a, of course, an important question. I think uh, most of the research shows it does, especially in terms of academic attainment, you know, who finishes high school, goes to college, finishes college. But uh, Marty, do you want to go first and talk more about well, what do we see in terms of outcomes? Sure. So there's been a lot of research um, that conducted on school choice. Um, researchers have examined uh, a wide variety of outcomes. They've they've looked at uh, the effects uh, on um, participant test scores, the effects on um, you know whether these students are graduating high school, going to college, um, matriculating, um, and the the effects on uh, parent satisfaction. That's a big area um, where we see see a lot of uh, positive um, effects, uh, integration, um, effects on civic outcomes, and, and so forth. And overall, um, the literature tends to be positive on all of these different measures. And as you mentioned, Neil, um, you know, 
attainment is one area where we, we tend to see uh, pretty positive uh, effects that, um, you know, students are, that participate in these programs are more likely to uh, not only graduate high school, but uh, enroll, enroll in college um, and persist uh, in, in college uh, as well. Uh, and can I throw in there, correct me if I get the title wrong, but uh, Ed Choice has a uh, compendium of this, one, two, threes of school choice, right? We do. And th thanks, Neil. I need to get better at uh, shamelessly promote, promoting my uh, stuff I work on. Yeah. Also, there's a book, School Choice Myths. People might want to check that out. Uh, ben, what, is, what do you have to say on this? Yeah, I, I, I concur. The evidence, if you look at all of it, uh, suggests that students that exercise choice are going to have more educational attainment. Um, their parents are going to be happier in terms of the education their children get, in terms of school safety, in terms uh, uh, of values, in terms of, of encouraging their students to actually go to college and succeed in college. Um, and Choice also promotes racial integration to date. Um, uh, the studies on that are, are, are almost unanimous. One study finds choice won't really impact uh, integration too much, and that was a small program, but all the other studies find that choice actually promotes racial integration uh, across schools. And so, and Marty said this early in the talk that the evidence is that there's actually modest learning gains for students who remain in public schools. So some students leave via choice. It does seem to have the incentive effects that Marty talked about earlier, that it gets the public schools worried about losing students and losing a little bit of their funding, that they do a better job with the students they have. But those effects are modest so far. Mm -hmm. All right, so we are nearing the end. We've had a lot of great questions and comments. I'm going to send uh, you guys the last comment uh, in, in a moment. Uh, but I thank everybody who's been sending questions and comments. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them all. Um, you know, uh, we'll have to do another event uh, on this topic. Uh, but the last one I want to mention is, or I want to present to you guys, is um, isn't the reason uh, that schools say they don't have variable costs that can be cut when school enrollment falls, that those costs have to do with labor and teachers unions who would oppose layoffs of quote unquote extra teachers, administrators, et cetera. Um, I sometimes think we assign too much blame to teachers unions, but they certainly labor contracts uh, make things very rigid for school districts. So how much do you all think that one of the problems they have with variable costs is that they are in labor contracts that don't enable them to make changes? And I think I started Marty last time, so we'll go Ben, uh, then Mark. So any school district that signs a labor contract that says, if we don't have the funding, we still got to keep the people employed you should never sign that contract. Um, you know, that's just that's just an incredible, I mean, I mean if you think about it, that's just, it would be incredible. Um, and so I, th I think part of it is that yes, teachers unions are very politically powerful. And so they 
sort of say, you know, if you lose students, you can't decrease employment. Um, again, no one else in the world has that deal, right? No, no matter where they work. Second, though, is I think public school employees and leaders tend to be good-hearted people, and they don't want to lay people up. That's not fun, right? But in every other walk of life, including my university, if we had a big enrollment drop, even tenured people like me might get laid off, right? In my contract, I get every year from my university, it says, yes, you're tenured, but if you know there's a funding issue, you can be rift, you know, reduction in force. So my job is subject to funding, even though I have tenure. Marty? Yeah, I agree with what Ben said. Um, you know, I, I think it, we should acknowledge that, you know, when, if you face, uh, if, if you're a district and you face significantly declining enrollment, you do have hard decisions to make. Uh, they're difficult. Um, but at the same time, I think that we should uh, trust the leaders to make the right decisions so that, um, you know, the decisions that they're making is in the best interest of of the kids um, and, and to be able to, to provide them with, you know, um, whatever support um, to, to, to effectuate those. Um, so yeah, the, these are hard decisions, um, but uh, again, I, I think that you have to, at the end of the day, do we want a system for the adults or do we want a, one that works best for families and children? Well, I will answer that rhetorical question and say the one that works best for family and children. Um, but with that, uh, we are now at the end of the hour. Uh, I want to thank our panelists, Ben and Marty. Thank you very much for, for talking with us and sort of giving us instruction on how we can look at the effects of school choice on spending. Uh, just remind everybody that uh, Ben and Marty's papers uh, are available on the Cato Institute uh, website page for this event. Also, you can get your copy of School Choice Myths. Uh, all of these are under the additional resources heading on the event page. And I thank you all for joining us. Goodbye.